Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Big Nose Podcast. A podcast that reviews everything going on in the last seven days. I suppose the week that was, there was two main things we will review this week. One of which was the very emotional, the very needed, and the fantastic Mr. Fox on the Late Late Toy Show. I think we'll all agree that the Toy Show was a highlight of the year possibly, but definitely of the last seven days. I will also be reviewing the government decision to move from level 5 on a national basis to level 3 in the fight against covid restrictions. Then we will be reviewing one of the most significant events to happen in this century so far as I take a look back over the last 20 years and identify some of the most important events that have shaped the 20 years of this the first 20 years of the century. So without further ado I think the best place to start is to look at the movement from level 5 restrictions to level 3 restrictions next week based on the government's appraisal of the situation where we are currently at. As things stand at this very moment the reproduction rate within the country stands at below 100 people per 100,000 which is a lot better than where it was up to five weeks ago where it was nearly 400 per 100,000. So all in all we're at a better situation than we where five weeks ago granted we aren't we aren't at a position where the government hoped we would be where we have less than 100 cases a day they were looking at moving to level two or three for this time of the year if we are at cases of two to three but i think the power of the lobbyists was underestimated i think we have to look at the whole picture we have to have a look at the state of the nation the state of the nation's psyche in terms of where people's heads are at. We also have to look at the people's response to current restrictions and the likelihood of them to work with further elongated restrictions of level five. I think when we look at the level five we've had over the past five weeks, we can compare it to the first lockdown we had and say that there was no comparison between the two. The first lockdown was a lot more stringent. There was a lot more restrictions on movement and as a nation we did it to the t- to the to the t we did it so stringent this time it was a little less stringent it was a lot less stringent we did a lot more movement we had a lot more options and we went a lot further than we did in the last lockdown from my own personal experience i think i didn't come across a checkpoint in the last 5 weeks Whereas when I was going to work in St. Vincent's Hospital in the first lockdown, on a daily basis you'd come across two or three checkpoints. So that was a significant difference. Also, there was a lot more uh, hanging around in takeaway coffee shops, outside takeaway pubs and what have you. So I think as a nation we adapted the first lockdown and made this lockdown a little bit more palatable. I suppose if we were to take on Neffet and their recommendations, I don't think Neffet is at a situation and Dr. Tony Hulohan is at 
a junction where they would be happy to lift the restrictions of level 5 and probably strongly disagree with the movement of the whole nation to level 3 restrictions next week. Um, in a national address shortly before the Lele Taisho, which I will go on to speak about at length a little bit later on, uh, the Taoiseach, Michal Martin, was very um, diligent in what he was saying. He appreciated the sacrifices that have again been made over the last five weeks, but is conscious of the time of the year that it is coming into Christmas and how Irish people celebrate Christmas in such a unique way. Um, with this in mind and with the evidence based on all of the factors coming in, not just in, from a public health perspective, but also from an economic perspective and from all other interest groups and stakeholders, including the lobby groups. There was a decision made in the round, I suppose is the best way to describe it, in terms of moving the country from level 5 to level 3. And from the 1st of December, um, we will be able to go to our gyms, go to our swimming clubs and go to our leisure facilities as well as return to um, places of worship, cinemas and of course we will be able to go to restaurants a couple of days later. We will also be able to attend a hotel, bread and breakfast for uh, staycations within our own county for the time being and pubs that serve food or as I think they're called bistros now or you know and I think you have to have a restaurant as well but pubs will be able to reopen that's their food and restaurants of course will be able to take bookings from the fort and this is for a period of about two weeks until such a time as we are able to travel out from the 18th of December a week out of from Christmas to other counties and there will be a, re a, re a reduction in terms of the restrictions as well, in terms of the amount of people you can attend or, or groups you can attend at your house. So from the 18th of December, a week before Christmas Day, um, families, uh, people from two other households will be able to attend in our household. Um, so yes, there is a huge amount of movement on this in terms of identifying where the cases are at, what the plan is for the new year, but in terms of moving from level five to level three, I think it's a common sense approach in terms of trying to get a message across that yes we've come through and made sacrifice in the last five weeks and we've made a huge amount of sacrifices over the last nine months and while we're not where we would love to be from a national health perspective in the round I think we're at a better situation than we were five weeks ago and I think and this is my own personal opinion and I don't know if it's true, I have no evidence to base it on, but it's on my own observations of the situations that I've come across in my own personal um, life. I think while schools remain open and while there's that circulation of children and that amount of movement within children's circles, there is going to be a level of infection that goes ahead regardless of restriction levels that we are at. The first things we closed down when COVID came into the country and one of the first I should say is that we closed down the schools to help stop movement of people but the fact that the schools have remained open and a lot of hard work has gone in by all those people within the schools, the sport management, the teachers, the SNAs, the caretakers and all the support structures within the education streams to keep the schools open but let's be let's be honest let's not beat around the bush we know that this infection 
this disease is spread through people, the congregation of people, people within uh, close contact with each other. And we know that school settings are ideal for that. And children are very difficult to social distance. It might be a little bit easier amongst our teenagers, but definitely amongst our primary school goers, it's very difficult. And within those primary schools, you have adults, obviously the teachers, the caretakers, the administrative staff, they're in these um, groups. So to think that we're going to get cases down below 100 while schools remain open, I think is folly. I think it's, it's a bit naive to think that. And I'm not advocating for the closure of schools, but I'm advocating for the fact that we accept that this is what is causing the, the spread of the disease within our community. And also, we need to be aware that we need a better contact tracing setup. We are not doing enough in terms of identifying the source of infection. In some cases, we're not going back more than 24 hours, and this is not appropriate. So as the country moves towards Christmas and as we move from a nation from level 5 to level 3 and more things open and more facilities and spaces open where people can congregate and engage, what do we expect to happen then come Christmas Day? Where families will be mixing from a number of households and let's be honest, the idea that we're not going to hug or embrace or be in close proximity with each other is again a bit of naive yes we can have the good public messaging and you know information given across to what the best practices are to do but in reality this is a ticking the box exercise from a government because if they weren't seen to be doing this then they wouldn't be doing their job or do due diligence so whether or not we decide to do what the government is suggesting and what Neffet is suggesting to minimize the risk to ourselves and to others the reality is likely to be very different. So we go we go into this with optimism, with hope, and with a look towards the new year that hopefully a vaccine will be in place where come the springtime we'll be all be able to get inoculated. But what does that mean for the new year? What does that look like for January? What will it mean for January? Will we be returning to a level five lockdown? And then that begs the question, what does level four look like? Level 4 doesn't seem to exist. It's a case of jumping up and down between level 3 and 5. So what does January look like? Is it a case that we will have an increase in cases um, up to and beyond Christmas? So if we take a two-week lag that restrictions will be lifted come the 1st of January, does that mean by the 14th, sorry, the 1st of December, does that mean by the 14th of December that we will see increase in cases and hopefully hopefully not, but increases in deaths. Will, by Christmas, we be in this case where we'll be at daily cases of upwards of 500? Or where we were not so long ago, cases of 1,200? And if by the 21st of this month, we see cases in around 1,000, does that mean that the government will move immediately to restrict movements over the Christmas period? I don't think so. So we're going to grin and bear it for the next four weeks as Christmas comes and goes. And then we will reassess the situation in the new year. By the new year, we're likely to have cases up in around 1,200 to 1,500 if things go the way that they have gone in the past. And deaths, of course, will proportionally go up as well. Will we be looking at the case that because we've interacted with the elderly, and the more at-risk groups over the last four weeks in from when we're in January, 
that the attrition rate of deaths will also increase exponentially. Because remember, this disease affects the elderly a lot more serious than it does the young and healthy. So are we going to sacrifice as a nation a bit of Christmas cheer for quite a lot of tears come January, January? Well, that's a question we have to consider ourselves. And I think my message and my observation of this is taking personal responsibility of the situations I put myself into. Or, for that instance, I find myself in. I will not be putting myself at risk. I will not be putting others at risk. And as hard as those decisions are, are to make, it is about a collective. I'm doing this not just for myself, but for those around me. And I think that's a very important message to get across. By all means, I'd love to be able to spend hours and hours eating food, getting drunk and having frivolity with my family over the Christmas period. But I know the likelihood is that I will be able to visit my parents. And yes, I might be able to have Christmas dinner or share a few drinks, but I know it won't be going into the late evening. And I know we won't be doing it in the same way we've done in previous years. And this is all for a hope that to come the new year, that we won't be in a situation of lockdown. And that we hopefully will be in a situation where, come April or May, when I hopefully will be getting married, that we'll be in a situation where we can have all our guests engaging with each other where we will be able to go up, get up and dance around and move around as we have done in other celebrations. So that's my hope for this Christmas, that we have a Christmas. A Christmas like no other, and a unique Christmas, but for it, for different reasons. And that we, next year we will have a, a Christmas like a normal Christmas, where we all enjoy a cracker and we all enjoy our food and we all enjoy too much and fall asleep on the sofa up against each other while the royal family play in the background from one Christmas memory to a Christmas staple and I suppose the late late toy show is a cornerstone of Irish society it is something that is enshrined is an institution within itself as much as the late late show is and this year more than ever perhaps we needed a late late show to lift our spirits to distract us to give us hope as we look into the festive period and in fairness to Ryan Turberty and in fairness to RTE who have come in for a lot of criticism over the last period a little while and in it is important to remember that this late late toy show went ahead in the most unusual circumstances in the hardest of circumstances. So looking at the Late Late Toy Show this year, Ryan Turbuti as host, as has been for a long time now, was taking on the role of fantastic Mr. Fox in a Roald Dahl themed Late Late Toy Show special. In a spectacular uh, invention uh, in attendance at the National Library, uh, it opened up with Ryan Turberty sitting at a desk and a musical number from Bjork, as far as I remember it, my music knowledge is somewhat not rusty. So yeah, it's all about being quiet and shh, but it's all about engaging in the Rodal mind of the child and the imagination that is used. In fairness, the show opened with a spectacular number and it was very engaging and, you know, it did, and it did it all from a social distance point of view, which you know already has come in for some stick over the last while. 
but everything was done by the book and they even had a social distancing guard a very funny young man who had his two meter stick um, on standby when Ryan entered the live studio and was making sure that everybody was keeping a safe distance looking at the set itself it was a magical mastery of artistic design James and the Giant Peach was very uh, prevalent in the stage design Willy Wonka gates were available to see as well as the tree from Willy Wonka it was a magical show and this year it had a different focus I think is the best to say and for many reasons I suppose in terms of where we're at as a nation what we can afford what we can't afford and what is important in society as we've come to learn over the last nine months it really isn't about the materialistic goods that we buy or what Santa brings it's actually about the people that we celebrate and this is what the show really encapsulated from the very outset um, we had special guests showing up I think the first was David Williams author TV personality um, and he was answering questions given across by Saoirse I think one of the f most memorable guests on the show was a young girl called Saoirse Rowan. Saoirse has had what can only be described as a traumatic 12 months and as much as we're going through trauma ourselves in a global sense with the pandemic the story she told so eloquently and so diligently was um, I think a very emotive story a girl who came across as so pure so genuine so gentle to have gone through the traumatic experience of losing a leg an amputated leg losing the ability to do what so many young kids would love to have would, would love and and, and really should be doing is running around a leg her leg was amputated as you all have seen uh, from a lump that she found in her leg which turned out to be a tumor but true strength determination she has turned this negative into a positive she has raised so much money and the show then went on to raise so much more as I'll go into detail in a while but just looking at her I think she was eight maybe nine years of age on the show and as she was going through what was coming out of her bag and telling her what it was it just reminds us all of the strength of character of young people and how regardless of the challenges that they face they come tr come to it with so much positivity so much determination and so much adaptability that as adults we can learn so much from it it's not about what you can't do it's what you can do and how you can overcome the challenges and the challenges that we face at the moment are massive but in her own story she was able to get up and walk around with the aid of the crutch but in time I hope she'll be able to walk by herself but I think the nice thing is that Ryan then went and inspired by her fundraising and, and what she's given back to society was to set up a fundraising tie show appeal which to my mind at this moment in time on Sunday afternoon has raised upwards of six million it's a magical thing to do and because of all the money raised and it will go to Bernardo's and other children's uh, charities around the country will add so much to their lives and I think that night as a nation we all took away so much from her journey and you know gave a, a greater perspective on life 
I suppose moving from Saoirse and this is what I'm talking about. It was all about the people and not the products. Annie, the ACDC fan, who was very bubbly, very energetic and very eloquent. Uh, eloquent in terms of her language, in terms of how she was able to get across her point and how quick-witted she was um, in terms of identifying that she doesn't like milk and saying that she really loves Fanta. But I remember sitting on the couch watching the show and... Um, the stuff was brought out to the two guys, uh, Ryan and Annie, in terms of what they were about to eat. And I remember seeing one of the RTE helpers, who was obviously dressed up as an Oompa coming out and just rushing off, set out of the corner of the eye. And they revealed the, from underneath the the from underneath the displays, she had a glass of milk and he had a, a, a glass of Fanta. But he decided that he had a big bottle of Fanta down beside him, beside his side, and he took it out and. He opened it, and I said, Anthony, watch this, and, and sure enough, he opened up the orange, and it basically blew up like a bomb, fizzed all over him, and lo and behold, he let out a, 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 a swear word, which we won't repeat on this show, but um, he he let the F-bomb drop, now, and in real time, I didn't hear it, and it was only when social media started going off that I did listen back to it, and you could hear it, but his reaction to it was kind of, so Ryan, so genuine, so honest, and a realization of what had happened that he didn't need to apologize there and then. And I don't think going into the future he needs to apologize. I don't want to hear him come on the radio show on Monday morning at nine o'clock and say, "You know, I'm very sorry to hear about f bomb. If anybody heard the f bomb or the f word, and I want to apologize, I don't think he needs to apologize. Someone had obviously set him up, shake the bottle when they had brought it out and put it down beside him." And it was brilliant, and it was just uh, encapsulated the nation as it was. That's how we are feeling at the moment, and that's one of the takeaway memories for me of the night. Um, but on a better, on a not a better, but on a on a more honest level, I'll be honest. Um, there wasn't a dry eye in the house that night, and Neve shed a tear, and, and I shed a tear. But I think the moment that got me most was the rendition of the Gary Barlow song rule the world where there was a young girl standing in the middle of a, a, a set on a, on a plinth singing beautifully uh, her rendition of um, Gary Barlow's song rule the world and take that song and then in behind her came people children of a similar age doing their rendition and then you could see that they were coming from Dubai and Perth and Toronto and Washington and Florida and it just gave a sense of you know what we're going through so much crap here in this country in terms of pandemic but there's a world out there there's a young world out there that hopefully will go into a future an irish future and spread the the the, the irish grow around the world as we have done for centuries and we're not just in this as an island but we're in this as a diaspora around the world and yeah that really got me and it gave me a sense of yeah now we're all in this together and and we're irish people all around the world and as much as we can't come home this year we will be still in each other's hearts and minds when we're raising the glass of mulled wine or champagne or prosecco or whatever it is guinness on that day and it really it really brought home the size of our irish family around the world 70 million of us i suppose in reflection of the thai show the the, the real hero of the show the real takeaway person who stands out and everybody might have their own individual there was maybe a few but i think adam from cork 
um, who had been in attendance with Temple Street Hospital and I think this one really really got at a lot of people's heartstrings. He was um he came across as such a genuine young man um who had had his own battles in life, uh, some degree in a wheelchair for part of the day, suffering from from brittle bones. And I think Ryan's engagement with him as well is um a testament to how Ryan does all these shows and you know, he gets comes in for a lot of stick for a lot of the stuff that Ryan does, but he does excel in this role a lot more than other previous presenters. But I think the fact that Adam and the reaction of Adam to the appearance of his hero, the porter from Temple Street, uh, John Doyle, and the stories that Adam regaled about the staff and the frontline workers at the hospital and, and how they go out of their way to make the place a good place uh, for the kids, for the amount of time that they spend there is, is amazing. And I think myself and Eva were discussing this later on how how important it is that sometimes you know heroes don't have to be the celebrities or don't have to be the famous people sometimes in kids lives and this is what I always say to people and sometimes in kids life it's not necessarily the person on the screen who's important or the hero or can be the hero it's just the person on a day-to-day basis the teacher the care worker, the SNA, the doctor, or in this case, the the porter, and it is important to remember this uh, in our own lives that we can be the hero for somebody, but else also someone around us can be our hero, and we don't always have to look for you know the silver lining in society in terms of looking for inspiration from Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. It can be as easy as the person in the shop corner who sells you sweets as a child. That can be your hero. And subsequently we learned of Adam's dream to visit NASA and Control Center. And, you know, he was on honest, uh, a very honest child in terms of not being able to be an astronaut. And it has been great the what has come out after the show in terms of the subsequent contact from... I know Chris Hadfield has been in contact. I know NASA has been in contact. And you know what? I hope that in time the opportunity for him to visit these places and experience these places as I have myself um, comes to fruition when all this returns to normal uh, the show itself finished off with a, a lyric that we will all be singing for a number of weeks to come that rock is the best medicine a young man from Loud called Noah who was very enthusiastic for want of a, letter, a lesser description um, in terms of his approach to life and how he conducts himself and then we had a very emotional part towards the end where the Ed came on a VT and heard about uh, Noah's story and his enthusiasm for music and the fact that he believes rock is the best medicine, which a lot of the members and fans of U2 would totally agree with. Um, Noah was taken aback when a guitar signed by the Edge came onto the stage and was there for him to take on with him that evening. There was many stories over the night. There was different stories. Dermot Kennedy came on. Um, and there was lots of different emotional stories, but I think, in in summary of the Toy Show and myself and my own personal opinion of it, it was great to focus on the kids and the story that they had, rather than focusing on the presence. Now the reason they may not focus on the presence is because obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic, and we're obviously in the middle of a recession, and Santa might be a little bit. Uh, restricted in terms of being able to get everything that he would want normally 
And instead of trying to put pressure on families and, you know, on Santa, it might have been a case of there's no point in publicizing all these great toys that are out there. Let's focus on the stories and the people. And I think that is one of the best things. And, and I think a lot of people looking at what happened on social media and the feedback across different channels is that it was one of the best toy shows ever in terms of its content. In terms of the money it raised through its toy show appeal, upwards of six million. In terms of the personal stories that were shared. And I know of all the stories that I've mentioned this evening, um, there are loads of other stories that don't get shared and people going through similar if not worse things. But as a nation, we all came in and sat down with our families. We had our decorations up, we had our wine in, we had our chocolate and popcorn ready. And the show went past midnight and some of us may have fallen asleep and... Yes, there wasn't a crowd in attendance, but we had the virtual frontline workers who went away with a tidy sum and all credited them for doing that. But as a nation, we came together, we we kind of uh, crystallized how we felt in one evening and we focused on people and their stories and their trials and their tribulations and the positivity that is still there within our country and especially amongst our young people. So when we get through this in the next 12 months, that we will be in a place and positioned in a place where we will be full of positivity, ready for the new world that emerges from post-COVID-19, and again be in a position to travel the world, travel the story of Ireland, and bring that grawl, that crack, and that personality to the world. And I think that's what the Late Late Toy Show encapsulated this time round. It wasn't about the toys, it wasn't about the Playstations or the Xboxes or the new thing on the TV. It was about the people, about the stories that they had to tell, the challenge they overcome, but in all of this, the positivity that still remained in their innocence and youth. And I think that is very important as we go into 2021. Turning to my review of the last 20 years and the first 20 years of this century and trying to identify key moments in it that maybe shaped this country i don't think i can start anywhere else really than to look at possibly the visit of queen elizabeth ii to ireland back in 2011. We all know, and I suppose I touched on last week's podcast, the bloody Sunday of 1920. But Queen Elizabeth visited Ireland in 2011, as Barack Obama did. But this was on a different scale, a scale that we had seen like no other. The then president of Ireland, Mary McAleese, was the one who had uh, stretched out the arm of invitation. Um, and I suppose... She was here on a four-day visit, and there are key moments. But looking back over her itinerary, the stuff that she did, the amount of events that she went through, for a woman of her age in itself is, you know, testament to her character. She arrived not in Dublin Airport, but at a aerodrome in County Kildare. It's called Casement Aerodrome. It's kind of where the um, where the army kind of do a lot of their work. She was. In, um, received by the then Tanishta Eamon Gilmore um, on a windy and wet Irish day which you know clad in her green she was very properly dressed 
From uh, the Casement Aerodrome, she went then to meet Mary McLeese and Aris Nukteron. And of course, as everybody who uh, arrives at Aris Nukteron as guest of Mary McLeese or any president of Ireland, she signed the guest book. Now, this was a really pomp and ceremony of trip. It was all about, um, you know, doing things on a state visit stage. And it was obviously very historical, but a part of that was obviously going through the jigs and reels of what a state visit encapsulates. She got received her 21-gun salute in the Phoenix Park and went and planted a tree beside the peace bell in the gardens of the president. From there, she then attended uh, the Garden of Remembrance, uh, just up off O'Connell Street, as far as I remember, and herself and Mary McAleese lay the wreath um, at the Garden of Remembrance. Now, what happened next, I suppose, is probably... When you look at the trip as a whole, and there was a couple of key iconic moments throughout this trip. But one of the key iconic moments that happened on day one was, of course, the fact that the Queen bowed her head, uh, saluting and commemorating all of those who had fought for Irish freedom at the, uh, in the Garden of Remembrance. And that was huge um, in terms of the acknowledgement of the head of the British Empire, the head of the English monarch, the head of the British monarch, acknowledging all those who had lost their lives in terms of the War of Independence. And that was significant. And I remember watching the uh, day on on the TV and the coverage across the board, but this is one of the standout moments. And I don't know if it was... Um, scripted i don't know if it was had been prearranged but um it was something that really went in terms went to uh, as far as term in terms of uh, galvanizing uh, all sides of ireland in terms of their beliefs in terms of yes the queen was here and she was acknowledging what had happened in the past and it was a very historic moment in the trip that she was here for four days she went from the Garden of Remembrance to Trinity College, where, of course, everybody visits to see the Book of Kells, and then retired to Farm Lee. I think she was staying at the embassy, the British embassy there in the Phoenix Park. So day two, up and at them, nice and early. I suppose she was off to the Guinness storehouse. I think Ryan Tuberty was there to greet her and give her the whole spiel about Guinness and what was going in. And of course, there was a pint poured, and I think protocol took over. I don't know if the media really thought she was going to lift the glass up and have a swig of the El Guinness, but I'm pretty sure my memory serves me correct that Prince Philip does. So she kind of saw the great and the good of Dublin that day. She went to government buildings herself, went then to the War Memorial Gardens at Island Bridge, and again, it was a wreath-laying ceremony. From there, she went on to, of course, the home and headquarters of the Gaelic Games of Ireland, uh, Croke Park. She was received by the President of the GAA there and of course was given the whole spiel about what had happened here and she was very much informed about what had happened in terms of the 1920 uh, Bloody Sunday Massacre and then later that day another iconic as I spoke previously about a couple of iconic moments she had it was in attendance as a guest of honour of the President of Ireland at a state dinner at Dublin Castle. Now what happened next in terms of the meal itself and what happened is she had a speech obviously and in this speech she started off the speech in Irish and all I remember is the face of Mary McAleese going wow 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 
And for an Irish, sorry, for an English monarch to speak in any other any other country's language is significant. But to speak in Irish in Ireland on our first visit was truly surmised by the words wow. And I can't put it any better, but it was just spine tingling. Now you might think it was only a co- it was only one sentence, a couple of words strung together, but it's the symbolism and Irish history is so much about symbolism, and especially between the English and the Irish, symbolism matters so much. And believe to believe that symbolism doesn't matter is to be very naive in terms of Irish history in Ireland today. Um, she spoke very eloquently about the relationship and very honestly about the relationship between Ireland and England over the last hundred years or more. And it all culminated, of course, in the Good Friday Agreement back in 1998. Day three, she got really into what she liked, and it was all about kind of her own pleasures. She went and visited the National Stud in County Kildare, and we all know the Queen loves horses. She is very fond of horses, and she's very into her horse. And she knows her horses. She knows, she knows her stuff in terms of that. And then, of course, the British part. Uh, sorry, the National Convention Centre was commissioned by um, the British Embassy to host a party in honour of the Queen, and all good things Anglo-Irish were were celebrated that night. Um, song, dance, art, the works, and the person hosting this was the British Embassy. Um, so everybody in attendance were guests of the British Embassy. It was a return, therefore, of what happened in Dublin Castle. Day four, she went outside of Dublin on a wider scale. She went down for a trip, a trip to Tip and visited the Rock Castle. And then she went to the English market in County Cork and, you know, got to meet a lot of different people. And the weather was really good. Um, it would be wrong of me to talk about the visit and how important the visit was in terms of it. And it went all well and brilliant. But there was a degree of protest, let's be honest. Not everybody was happy that she was in attendance. Sinn Féin, for example, wasn't very happy about it, but accepted it. But there was protests around the cities that she was attending, and they were well kept back, and it was one of the biggest security operations that ever happened on this island. So much so that in the weeks before, they were sealing manhole covers, they were sealing anything, post boxes, anything that be used in terms of a security risk was being sealed up and shut up weeks in advance. And I remember it distinctly. The legacy of her visit, well, that's for the historians to write. I suppose one of the biggest things to come out of it was that a year later, as Deputy First Minister Martin McGuinness agreed to meet her while she was in attendance in Belfast and shake her hand and just acknowledge her, I suppose. And that was really significant in terms of the legacy of that visit. But subsequently, it opened the path for other royals to visit subsequently, and we know that the... um, Prince of Wales has visited, and the Prince Harry has visited, and uh, Prince William has visited with his wife. And, you know, it's a stepping stone to a brighter future together. And we have subsequently had our head of state um, visit and speak and address the House of Commons. And overall, it would be wrong not to mention it as a significant event in Irish history. And definitely, it would be wrong not to mention it as a significant event in terms of the last 20 years or the first 20 years of this century so that is why i am putting in there as a significant moment of the first 20 years of this century the visit of queen elizabeth ii of england to the republic of ireland in 2011 
Thank you very much for listening to this week's podcast. I hope you found my review of the movement from level 5 restrictions to level 3 restrictions this week interesting. I hope my thoughts on the Late Late Toy Show are similar to yours and if you have any thoughts I'd be delighted to hear from a direct message me on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And I hope you agree that the visit of the Queen to Ireland in 2011 was, defi- 11 was definitely a moment of significance in the last 20 years. Again, I'm looking forward to any thoughts that you might have on significant moments over the last 20 years. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and stay tuned for more podcasts where you normally get them in the future. Thanks for listening. Take care and have a great week.